This sports special is a presentation of the Radio Talking Book Network in Omaha, Nebraska. It is intended solely for blind, visually impaired, and print-disabled listeners. And now here's your narrator for the program, Michael Fouch. Typically the sinkers 91-92, the splitters like 87. We've got a uh, pitch clock violation on Marcus. There you go. Hello and a very pleasant good day to you wherever you may be. This is Michael Fouch as we dig into the Atlantic Magazine, their July-August 2023 issue, and this story... Inside baseball's desperate effort to save itself from irrelevance, and why, to my surprise, it's working. It's a piece by Mark Leibovich. When you're used to working at a deliberate pace, it, it, you just feel like you're constantly working fast, and a lot of pitchers aren't comfortable doing this. If you look at the screen here, the difference between 2022 and 2023. In 2022, he has it, he's ready to throw this pitch on the right-hand part of your screen at 13 seconds. This is almost five seconds later. It almost gets right down to 20, and he hasn't even thought about it, so this would have been a violation right there. There's a huge difference between 13 seconds and 21 seconds. That's an eternity. And then the changeup, which is really his main weapon. He's got a good fastball. It's sneaky, but he needs the changeup. 2023, he's got to get it, he's got to get it loaded, get it signed, and he delivers it in 10 seconds. What happens? Boom, rapid fire, he gets a base hit. Look on the left, 18, 19, almost 18 seconds. That's another eternity between a good changeup and a bad changeup. And what it really matters, too, when you get runners on base or you get some guys in traffic and you have to pitch out of the stretch. 2023, he's got to be ready. The hitter's in the box, he's got to deliver. Boom, at 10 seconds, another one straightaway center field he's at 17 seconds right here and he hasn't even thought about delivering a pitch yet so there is a a, a difference it, it's almost like this Matt like you you take like a, 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 in basketball a guy that can shoot if you're really slow and deliberate you'll never get your shot off so you've got to be able to catch the ball and get rid of it and shoot it quickly to get your shot off and it's hard to do that it's much harder to work fast and be good than it is to work slow. And I, and I know that it sounds hard to believe, but what this does too, it makes you feel like you're constantly in this. It's almost like when you go hit balls at a driving range. It's just one after another, you start rapid firing, and all of a sudden it's boom, but you stop thinking and you start throwing. And it's going to be a problem for some pitchers, and it's going to be a problem for catchers too, because it almost makes it impossible to take the air out of the ball or an inning starting to get away from you where you can, hey, Walk out to the mound, a guy can step off, and this thing can happen really fast. He's going to struggle with this. You know, it's interesting, too, and I want to ask you this yeah. from a hitter standpoint. He was told last year on a couple of occasions by umpires, you got to get out here quicker. Like right. his, his kind of tranquilo thing, it's not just between pitches. It's between innings. If you're a hitter in the box, dude's not on the mound yet. Oh, man, you're getting frozen in the box as well. I mean, you're trying to figure out how can I – stay in, into my legs as I'm standing up here because sometimes you're standing here so long that you're almost in between. Do I try to call timeout? Do I step out the box? What am I doing? And then he waits so long that the, by the time he's delivering his pitch, 
you find yourself a little bit flat footed you're trying to stay engaged with your legs and it's I mean it's really annoying honestly when a pitcher takes that long to go to the go to the dish but I think for the pitcher maybe he's able to execute his pitch he's he's not missing the spots like you were saying earlier if he's rushing he's going to make more mistakes and you have the hitters more engaged it works just like defense behind the pitcher when the pitcher works fast mm. your defense is they're ready to go they're on the balls of their feet they're ready to react sometimes when the pitcher takes too long it works against you and that I'll get on my heels on defense, I'll lose my focus a little bit, and it could hurt you that way. So there are benefits and, and, and some harm in taking too long to go to the dish. Where in the name of human rain delays is Juan Soto? The stud outfielder is late. Everyone keeps checking their phones. The antsy Major League Baseball officials, the San Diego Padres PR guy, the handful of reporters, and the assorted hangers-on you encounter around baseball clubhouses. Everyone is wondering when the Padres superstar will show up. He was supposed to be here a half hour ago, just after this baseball player's sanctum opened and we were allowed to join them in their most elemental of baseball activities, waiting around. Now Soto, who is 24, works at his own pace. He is a baseball player. Players do their thing and the game indulges their routines at least to a point. But everything was supposed to be different today, the first day of baseball's new accelerated life. I'd flown into Phoenix the night before to witness the first spring training game of the year in Peoria, Arizona between the Padres and the Seattle Mariners. Now, normally, I would pay zero attention to this contest, even if it counted in the standings or, for that matter, even if it were a World Series game, I wouldn't care. Baseball's been losing me for years, as steadily as its games have become more interminable every season. Less scoring, less action, slower, more stagnant, yet here I am. Here we all are for a Padres-Mariners scrimmage on February 24th. One of two games scheduled to begin just after 1 p.m. The Rangers would be concurrently opening against the Royals not far away in Surprise, Arizona. These would be curious and newfangled specimens, the first major league contests to feature rules enacted to revitalize a sport that had been heading toward cultural irrelevancy. Time of game, 3 hours, 32 minutes, or some such bloated number, had become a mocking coda to the nightly slogs. In a few hours, MLB would introduce a novel ethic into its stationary culture, urgency. Limits would be placed on pickoff throws, as well as time taken between pitches and between at-bats. The most radical change would be the addition of a pitch clock, a kind of pacemaker to re-regulate the game's lagging heartbeat. Pitchers would now be allowed just 15 seconds to begin their motion to deliver the baseball to home plate, 20 seconds with runners on base, and hitters would have to be set in the batter's box by the 8-second mark. Failure to do so would result in an automatic ball for delinquent pitchers or a strike for dawdling batters. The goal is to curtail dead time, the endless velcroing and re-velcroing of batting gloves and strolling around the mound. Also, in an effort to stimulate offense, MLB had banned infield shifts to encourage aggressive base running. It had augmented the size of the bases. Now, how would this best version of baseball as one of its architects calls it play in Peoria. 
At the very least, hopefully it would play faster. The pitch clocks, which were deployed throughout the minor leagues in 2022, cut the average game time by 26 minutes. Pretty much everyone who experienced this sped up rendering loved it, but that was the minors. And it's one thing for a spectator to be anesthetized over several years and crave something new, but what would the royalty think? And how would this affect King Juan if he never gets here? A Padres PR guy is apologetic, explaining to me that Soto is still relatively new to the team. He was acquired from the Washington Nationals last year and that the staff is still trying to divine his propensities and quirks. After about 40 minutes, Soto appears through a side door and heads for his locker. He pauses and scrolls through his phone. I think about walking up to him, but my legs will not move. It's funny that way with pro athletes, my earliest idols. They can be extremely scary to approach. I've interviewed presidents, Nobel laureates, and all flavors of tycoon and luminary over the years and never felt intimidated, but put me in front of a partially dressed man-child in pajama pants who can hit a baseball and I'm suddenly reduced to a puddle at his feet. Juan, hey, I say, finally moving toward him. I gotta go over here, Soto says, blowing past me and into a training room. After another 10 minutes, Soto re-emerges and starts bantering in Spanish with two of his teammates, designated hitter Nelson Cruz and star third baseman Manny Machado. They stand in a huddle, giggling a few feet away from where Xander Bogarts, the former Boston Red Sox shortstop who signed an 11-year, $280 million contract this past winter, is being interviewed. Soto continues to give off strong do-not-approach vibes, so I hold my position in the center of the room. Next to me is another clubhouse loiterer, Josh Rawich, the president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown, New York, who is on hand to collect mementos from this landmark happening. Quote, we're going to want to grab one of the new larger bases at some point, Rawich says to me. It seems wholly on-brand for baseball that even in this season of renovation, the sport remains ever attentive to its treasured souvenirs. Rawwich hands me his business card, and the two of us continue waiting around. Finally, Soto ambles back toward his locker, and I walk over to introduce myself. The time is now 8.56 a.m., exactly four minutes, until the clubhouse will be closed to interlopers. Quote, I have a good feeling, Soto reports to me after I lead off our discussion with a piercing how-do-you-feel question. Specifically, how does he feel about the new pitch clock? Quote, I feel like baseball. If you enjoy the game, you got to give us time to think and to see and look around at everything, Soto says. Now, this might have been a mild complaint, but I would generally characterize Soto's default posture as unfazed. 9 a.m., folks, a team official announces. Non-players start heading for the exits. I wish Soto luck, and he shakes my hand, and that is the extent of the action. Time of interview, 3 minutes and 10 seconds. I feared that my foray back into baseball might end up a requiem. I missed having a sport to care about after the NBA and NHL playoffs ended and before football began. I obsessed over baseball growing up and rarely missed a Red Sox game into my 30s, but by the time I reached middle age, baseball was an afterthought. The only time I would ever seriously tune in again was when the Sox happened to be playing in the postseason, which 
unfortunately has occurred with some regularity this century. On a related note, the Yankees will always fair and squarely suck. The so-called national pastimes fade into bygone territory has happened simultaneously with my brain speeding up to receive the various dopamine pelts coming at me from my phone, laptop, NFL Red Zone channel, or whatever else captures my attention instead of the latest chore creeping past midnight on the MLB network. Apparently, there were many of us. We were reflected in audience surveys and TV ratings and testimonials from pretty much every longtime baseball fan I knew. Annual game attendance dropped from 79.5 million in 2007 to 64.5 million last year. And then there was the separate constituency of younger fans and thrill seekers who never got the baseball thing to begin with and weren't exactly binging Field of Dreams and George Will columns to find out what they were missing. I remember a few years ago trying to get my then 13-year-old nephew Carlos excited about the longest ever World Series game, which had been played the night before, a 3-2 victory by the Los Angeles Dodgers over the Boston Red Sox in 18 innings, 7 hours, 20 minutes. Carlos flashed me a classic OK Boomer smirk, even though I'm not a boomer, and went back to his Minecraft or fantasy football or whatever the hell he was doing. Baseball had a great run, a nice century. Boxing used to be huge, too. Times change, tastes veer, attention spans shrink. Cultural gems become cultural relics. It's no one's fault. We move on to new things. Roger Angel died last year. Vita Blue left us in May. His tops card was in the spokes of my bike. Nothing is timeless, not even baseball. Each morning in years past, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred would review daily reports charting the advancing lengths of the previous night's games. Quote, it was not a good story, he told me. Last year was so depressing, I just stopped doing it. Manfred, who started as commissioner in 2015, knew that the game had hit a bad seam to avoid further decline. Baseball would have to save itself from lethargy. I came in as kind of an embedded spectator to this operation beginning last fall when I attended Game 4 of the World Series between the Philadelphia Phillies and the visiting Houston Astros. My three-hour trip up I-95 from Washington, D.C. told its own story of the cultural ghetto that baseball now inhabited. As I drove, I sampled the sports radio offerings in various cities. Around D.C., everyone was fixated on the news that the hideous owner of the Washington Commanders, Daniel Snyder, might finally be unloading the once venerable NFL franchise. Baltimore stations featured intense concerns over the contract dispute between the Ravens and their star quarterback, Lamar Jackson. Not until I got within 30 miles or so of Philly did anyone on the radio so much as mention the World Series, a mark of baseball's drift into the foul territory of regional sport. Upon entering the city of brotherly love, it was all Phillies everywhere. Philadelphia is a great sports town, and the surprising Phillies, who barely slipped into the postseason, play in spiffy Citizens Bank Park to loud and engaged fans, albeit many of them drunk, disgusting animals. The game itself was historic, I suppose. 
four Houston pitchers combined to no-hit the Phillies in a 5-0 victory that tied the Fall Classic at two games apiece. It was just the second no-hitter in the World Series 119-year history, joining Yankees pitcher Don Larson's perfect game in 1956. The Fox broadcasters and a few sports writers and Astros partisans seemed dutifully aroused by the achievement the Hall of Fame secured the rosin bag. But besides that milestone, I remember nothing about the game, mostly because nothing happened. And it took three hours and 25 minutes. Quote, it's cool. We'll be in the history books, I guess. Phillies left fielder Kyle Schwarber sat at his locker after the game. His voice as dead as his team's bats. Yeah, I really don't give a shit. Neither, apparently, did large swaths of the viewing public. Philly-Houston in 2022 was the second lowest-rated World Series since Nielsen began tracking these numbers five decades ago, ahead of only the COVID Classic of 2020. Before Game 4, I'd met Morgan Sward, MLB's Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, who was preparing to monitor the action, such as it was, from a suite above home plate. Sward, a boyish, ready-faced dynamo, has become the chief orchestrator of the new rules. He began planning to implement them after baseball's new collective bargaining agreement was reached in early 2022. Quote, welcome to one of the last slow baseball games, Sward said as I entered the suite. I assured Sward that I would savor this bland finale with great nostalgia, maybe between pickoff throws. Sword and I would meet a few times through the offseason. His mission was straightforward, to make baseball less boring. Quote, I think it's the most significant change made to the sport in my lifetime, he told me, referring to the pitch clock. Now, Sward is only 38, so his lifetime does not cover most of the game's major transformations. Still, his point would be valid even if he'd been born a century ago. The introduction of the designated hitter in 1973 was certainly meaningful, but it was more of a lineup and personnel amendment than a disruption of the game's rhythms. Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier in 1947 transformed the culture, character, and style of the sport forever, but not the actual rules. Night baseball, which began in 1935, was a huge development, but ultimately a scheduling phenomenon. None of these changes recalibrated baseball's essential pace. For years, the league had done its best to speed things along, but the enforcement mechanisms were toothless. If a player was particularly lackadaisical during an at-bat, an umpire might tell him to hurry up. If he was a habitual slowpoke, MLB might send out a warning or, at worst, issue a fine of a few hundred dollars. That's loose change to a multi-millionaire offender. Quote, the league office would send letters fighting the players, Theo Epstein told me. Epstein, the former general manager of the Boston Red Sox and president of baseball operations for the Chicago Cubs, masterminded those franchises' first championships in 86 and 108 years, respectively. And we'd have to have someone in the office take the letters down to the clubhouse to the players so they could crumple them up in a ball and then say, just tell me how much the next fine is. When Manfred took over as commissioner, he made it clear that speeding up the game was a priority. 
He instituted a set of relatively minor adjustments that nibbled a few minutes and seconds away here and there. Limitations on warm-up throws, in-game conferences, and pitching changes, eliminating the need to throw four outside pitches to complete an intentional walk. But this did not address the biggest drag on time, pitchers and batters fussing around between deliveries. So, starting this season, excessive delay would be punishable by balls and strikes, a direct performance cost that could influence the outcome of the game and the player's statistics. After two unsuccessful pickoff throws by a pitcher, an unsuccessful third one would advance the runner a base. Quote, the one thing you learn about discipline in baseball is uh, that money is a very weak deterrent, Manfred told me with a resigned laugh. The things that work affect what players really do care about. Do you win or lose? Does it affect how well you do your job? Baseball has been eager to bring pitch clocks to the big leagues for years, especially after its top executives saw how effective they were in cutting game times in the minors. After a reorganization of the sport in 2020, MLB gained oversight of minor league baseball, which became a laboratory for potential innovations. The league also conducted fan surveys showing that not only did fans want a brisker pace, they also did not care for all the walks and strikes strikeouts and pickoff throws. They craved more action and offense, more balls hit into play, more doubles, triples, and stolen bases. But MLB could not quickly implement any of these big changes without the approval of the Major League Baseball Players Association, a colossus of a sports union that tends to be fiercely distrustful of management. This is particularly true of rule changes that owners might impose that could affect players' livelihoods. Baseball in general is the most change-averse of games bound like no other major sport to its quirky traditions and rules, written and unwritten. Players can be a notoriously delicate bunch, protective of their routines and hypersensitive to workplace disruptions. Baseball's last collective bargaining agreement expired after the 2021 season, which resulted in an off-season lockout that delayed spring training and the start of the 2022 season. A game that was ailing to begin with now appeared headed for a catastrophic work stoppage. Some fans responded with their standard laments about the greed, arrogance, and ineptitude of the game's leaders, but perhaps more worrisome, many others didn't seem to care all that much. Would anyone really miss baseball? In March 2022, MLB owners and players reached a deal on a new five-year collective bargaining agreement, ending the lockout after 99 days. Beyond the major points of contention over minimum salaries and bonus pools, the agreement made it easier for MLB to change the rules. A new joint competition committee was formed to deliberate over new rules. It was made up of six owners, four players, and one umpire, so management effectively controlled the panel. Six months after the new agreement was signed, the league announced a more enduring salvation, the pitch clock, coming in 2023.
Though the Players Association accused the commissioner's office of refusing to, quote, meaningfully incorporate the player feedback, this was perhaps the most enlightened addition to baseball since batting helmets, or maybe soft serve ice cream served in many batting helmets. In September 2021, I had attended a California League game in San Bernardino that deployed one of these beauties. It was a revelation, and I hoped a preview. Unbeknownst to me, Sword and a few members of his team had attended a California League game a few weeks earlier in Rancho Cucamonga and had a similarly effusive reaction to what they saw. The innings flew by in San Bernardino, even though the two teams I was watching, the Inland Empire 66ers and the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes, scored tons of runs. I was focused on the action and barely checked my phone. Rancho Cucamonga won 8-7 and the game was over in 2 hours 40 minutes. A few days later, I attended a clockless MLB game in Los Angeles that was comparatively like watching grass grow, albeit the lush and manicured pastures of Dodger Stadium. News of the coming rule changes, particularly the pitch clock, was met warily by some major leaguers. The knee-jerk critique of the clock was tied to the purest notion that baseball was unique in its timelessness, that its leisurely rhythms should be sacrosanct. I don't like it, Red Sox second baseman Trevor Story said after the new rules were announced. Our game is special in that it doesn't have a clock. Story, who signed a six-year, $140 million contract with Boston in March 2022, since then he's mostly languished on the injured list, seemed put off by the idea that anyone would want to spend less time witnessing the divine occurrence of a baseball competition. Quote, I don't know why everybody wants it over so quick, he said. Well, ideally for Red Sox fans, his contract would be too. In general, the baseball must be timeless decree is lazy and dumb, and typically trotted out by those who have never endured a 37-minute inning with a melting-down six-year-old on a school night. For starters, no one was proposing placing a timer on baseball's substantive action. They are regulating only excess time between pitches, the practice swings, swatting of bugs, and staring at dirt. Unlike an NBA game, whose essential activity will always cease after 48 minutes barring overtime, a baseball game is still measured in 27 outs per team barring extra innings. No one activates a timing device after a ball is hit. The play is over when it's over. If a pitcher can't get a batter out, no buzzer's going to save him. If neither team has a run advantage after nine innings, they keep playing. Quote, I think the statement that baseball is the game with no clock is more facile than deep, Manfred, the MLB commissioner, told me. He mentioned an interview conducted by the sports broadcaster Dan Patrick with Tom Boswell, the exquisite former baseball columnist for the Washington Post. Boswell, Manfred told me, was thrilled by the new rules and said he was back to watching baseball, which the commissioner said it helped him appreciate how far things had deteriorated. Quote, you know, it's one thing when you're talking about Joe on the street, Manfred said, but when you have people who make their living in the business saying, I'm not watching as much, well, you have a problem. Epstein told me that when he was running the Cubs after they were eliminated from contention, he would watch every postseason game between the remaining clubs 
or he would for as long as he could stand it. Some of those World Series games were taking so long, I found myself channel surfing, Epstein said, and I talked to a lot of other people in baseball who were experiencing the same thing. In the middle of January 2023, Morgan Sword and his team invited me to a Scottsdale, Arizona resort to attend a special boot camp that MLB had organized for the game's 76 full-time umpires to get acclimated to the new rules. Quote, our goal is to suck the idle time out of our game, said Reed McPhail, the league's senior vice president of baseball operations, announcing to the umpires during an evening presentation. ESPN's Jeff Passan described the pitch clock as baseball liposuction. Well, the all-hands session dragged on for more than three hours, metaphor alert, in large part because the umpires seemed unsettled by the coming revolution and asked a million questions. Quote, umpires thrive on guidance, Sword told me outside the ballroom. We expected a lot of the back and forth. It's better to iron things out now. Sword said the main purpose of the retreat was to encourage the umpires to enforce the new rules from day one, no exceptions, easing in, or grace periods. Quote, once we flip the switch on this, we're in the future, he said. Now, Sword fits the current mold of young baseball executive. He was a high school catcher and outfielder in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, who was not good enough to keep playing at the University of Virginia, where he majored in economics. He interned one summer with the Phillies and was inspired to pursue a career in baseball after reading Moneyball, Michael Lewis's best-selling 2003 book on the data and analytics revolution in the sport pioneered by Oakland Athletics general manager Billy Bean. Like many concerned keepers of the game and its traditions, Sword will often explain the creeping dispassion for baseball in terms of that overcooked analogy about the boiling frog in the pod. Quote, Part of what made this so tricky was that the games were getting two or three minutes slower every year rather than a half hour slower, so there was never a point where it felt like a real emergency, he told me. I offered an alternative analogy comparing baseball's predicament to a slow-growing tumor that the new rules would surgically excise. Quote, I prefer to go back to the frog, Sword said. How did America's beloved old frog find itself in such mortal danger? Well, baseball's slowdown took many forms and had no shortage of culprits. The Moneyball innovators placed premium value on hitters working counts and taking walks. Grinding out at bats became a thing. Players with king batting eyes became folk heroes. Lewis introduced Reader to a newly coveted minor league infielder, Kevin Euclid, the Greek god of walks. Meanwhile, a boom in pitching talent and optimization tools led to an obsession with hurlers missing bats. Pitchers throw significantly harder than they used to. Fastballs now average 94 miles an hour, which requires greater physical exertion and, in many cases, several seconds more recovery time between deliveries. The result, more strikeouts, more walks, less contact with the ball, less offense and less action. Now, this new breed of analytics eggheads provided fodder for a classic business book, that's Moneyball, a fun movie based on that book with Brad Pitt as Bean and God knows how many MBA case studies and MIT grads inundating baseball teams with their theorems and resumes. But as an actual consumer product, this brainiac pitching dominant version of baseball was not much fun to watch. 
Quote, look, there's nothing wrong with analytics, Manfred told me. The problem is they've been used to solve for one thing. How do I win baseball games? And that's a very narrow goal when you think about the business overall. Manfred, who started working in baseball as an outside counsel in 1987, joined the league full-time in 1998 as the executive vice president for labor relations and human resources. Fidgety and intense, he can evince the aloof manner of a lawyer bureaucrat who quite obviously never played the game. He also talks like this. Analytics can quite frankly ignore what your business optimization should look like in terms of revenue. Well, as a practical matter, he says, statistical probabilities take time to process and disseminate. A bench coach, for instance, might notice something from the dugout, and then he might consult a spreadsheet and call to the batter, who then might step out of the batter's box for a few seconds while he receives the information. The catcher might then try to adjust the pitch sequence or adjust an already complicated set of signs, which might necessitate a visit to the mound. Another example? the shift. Refined data have helped teams become more precise at placing their defenders where opposing batters are most likely to hit the ball and adjusting for specific counts. Against certain left-handed pull hitters, shortstops would routinely move to the right of second base, joining the second and first baseman on a lopsided infield. This wasted several more seconds moving the players around and also lost a lot of offense. Singles and doubles that were once smashed through infield holes became momentum-killing outs. Beyond the cold tyranny of numbers, the culture of baseball had evolved in the direction of dead time. Every team, for instance, embraced mental skills coaching, which encouraged players to slow the game down with assorted breathing, visualization, and relaxation techniques. Likewise, certain batter's box ticks, such as the Red Sox Hall of Famer David Ortiz spitting on his hands and clapping them together, had become legendary. They were also widely imitated. John Stanton, the chair of the Mariners and a longtime proponent of the new rules as chair of the league's joint competition committee, which oversees rules and on-field issues, witnessed this when he coached his son's little league teams. Robinson Cano, a star infielder who played five years for the Mariners, had a very particular method of adjusting his batting gloves after each pitch. And quote, then all of a sudden I see my six-year-old and my 12-year-old doing the same thing, Stanton told me. Similar delays were breaking out all over the field. The dynamic was, we were teaching a whole new generation to walk around the back of the mound every time they threw the ball, he said. Quote, if we had let this game evolve on its own, we were on our way to an unwatchable sport, Epstein told me. He left the Cubs after the 2020 season and went on to join Major League Baseball as a consultant to help reverse the tailspin that had befallen the game itself. He shared a few key data points that illustrated the grim trend lines he'd been up against when he joined the rescue squad. In 2021, Epstein's first season as consultant, Major League Games averaged a record 3 hours and 11 minutes. That's a full 42 minutes longer than the 2 hours and 29 minutes they averaged in 1976. What's more, not much was happening between the endless timeouts, rosin bag ruminations, elbow pad modifications and testicle readjustments, and this was especially true on offense. In 2022, 
non-pitchers had their lowest batting average of all time, 243. The strikeout rate had risen to 22.4%, approaching the rate that two of the best strikeout pitchers in history, Sandy Koufax and Nolan Ryan, had achieved over their careers. As noted by my Atlantic colleague Derek Thompson in the century and a half of MLB history covered by the database baseball reference, the 10 years with the most strikeouts per game are the past 10. So what's it going to look like 10 years from now when the league is hitting 215, Epstein said? Who's going to want to watch that? After my spring training brush with Juan Soto, Glenn Kaplan, an MLB PR executive, walked me through brief visits with the managers of both the Padres and the Mariners. It was a cool Cactus League morning of luminous sun and green grass, the cracking of bats, the thudding of mitts, Shoeless Joe emerging from the cacti. Fans began pulling into the Peoria Sports Complex for the 1.10 p.m. game. Bob Melvin, the Padres manager, stationed himself in a small patio area outside the locker room and addressed reporters. Melvin, a former big league catcher now leading his fourth team, has the wary, seen-it-all manner of an exemplary baseball man. He allowed that it was unfortunate that the slowing of the game had repelled generations of potential fans, but he also spoke of the phenomenon with remove. This was not his problem. Quote, I've noticed it, but I don't really care, he told me. In other words, Melvin would much rather win a game in four hours than lose in two. Everyone affiliated with the Padres or any other team would say the same. Quote, from a baseball operations standpoint, you just don't have the bandwidth to think about the fan experience, Epstein told me. It's a zero-sum game. If you want to win five more games, you have to take those five wins away from another team. All of your thinking, all of your R&D is geared to doing that. When Epstein was leading the analytics revolution in baseball as a moneyball guru for the Red Sox and then the Cubs, I asked him, did he ever consider the unintended harm he might be causing the game? No, he said. It was all about how to prevent one more run and score one more run. Now, players and managers might talk about growing the game and attracting new fans, but it usually comes off as lip service. Quote, we are in the entertainment business, and we have to understand that, keeping it as fan-friendly as we can, Scott Service, the Seattle manager who was sitting in his office, told me. The Mariners' clubhouse dog, Tucker, a yellow lab retriever mix, kept scurrying in and out of the room, apparently hungry. What happens, I asked, if fan-friendliness conflicts with player or manager friendliness? Quote, we're in the entertainment business, Service said again. His voice assumed the dutiful monotone of a hostage video. But as we spoke, I began to believe that Service, another former catcher who was participating in his 35th spring training, was sincere. I asked him if he ever worried about the state of the game. Quote, yes, I do, Service told me. He paused. I'm trying to decide if I want to say this or not. Always a sentence that makes a reporter's ears perk up. He glanced at his PR babysitters. There are games when I'm sitting there in the dugout and I will think, this is boring, Service said. And I've been part of this game my whole life. This is boring. It's three up, three down, no action. 
If there is one team that has bought into baseball's acceleration campaign, it is the Mariners, led by Stanton, the chair of MLB's Joint Competition Committee. Stanton has steeped himself into the trend lines of tedium that have stricken the sport. He has also studied how other sports leagues have adjusted their rules to enliven games. The NBA's 24-second shot clock eliminated laborious stall tactics. The NFL made it harder for defenders to manhandle receivers, leading to an explosion of passing offense. Given Stanton's dual roles as chief of the Mariners and champion of the pitch clock, I asked how he would feel if his team wound up winning the World Series on a clock violation. Well, Stanton laughed and then stipulated that he would always prefer that a game not be decided by a rule infraction, but, he said, as the managing partner of the one team in baseball that has never been to the World Series, if we get there as a result of an earthquake that hits the other 29 markets, we will still take it. Sword and Epstein, two of the founding fathers of the new baseball, were in Arizona to witness the Mariners and Padres inaugurate the pitch clock era. I found Sword tapping away on his phone outside the San Diego clubhouse before the game, his cheeks an even darker hue of cardinal red than usual. Normally a relaxed and comfortable presence, Sword was a conspicuous basket case today. He was leaning against the door of a closet marked isolation room, preparing to do a final consult with the umpires and officials from both clubs, and then visit the press box to check in with the stadium's pitch clock operator. A few minutes before first pitch, I settled into a lower box seat behind home plate with Epstein to my left and Sword and Kaplan to my right. Epstein wore a cap pulled low over his forehead and kept his hands buried in his pockets. He appeared more subdued than sword or maybe fatigued, given the spirited reunion he'd enjoyed the night before with a bunch of his old pals from the Cubs at a raucous Mexican steakhouse in Scottsdale. Fire dancers, infinite tequila, you know. Epstein looked to be in desperate need of a nap, which, thanks to the new rules, should now be available to him sooner. The pitch clock is great for hangovers, he declared. Epstein majored in American studies at Yale and was hired by the Red Sox at 28, making him the youngest general manager in Major League history to that point. His curse-crushing resume has earned him boy genius for life status, even though he will turn 50 this year. Epstein and I first met in 2012 when I interviewed him in Chicago for an anthology of profiles that I contributed to about Semitic sports heroes called Jewish Jocks. Quote, is this a pamphlet or a book? Epstein had asked me when I first approached him, which immediately won me over, even though he'd already earned my eternal gratitude for his historic Red Sox deeds. Disclosure, I am totally in the tank for this man. Epstein had served on previous versions of the competition committee during his tenures with the Red Sox and Cubs and wished to remain involved in the rule and reform debates after he left. He wrote Manfred a long letter in 2020 with recommendations on how to best measure fan sentiment, develop new guidelines, and realize the best version of baseball. Manfred hired him as a part-time consultant, but not without ambivalence. Epstein is a brilliant and visionary figure in baseball with a high profile and Hall of Fame cachet. This gave Manfred pause, something the commissioner was more open with me about than I would have expected. Quote, I'll be honest with you, Theo's a big presence, Manfred told me. 
When you bring somebody like that in, it's like, how's he going to fit with the people who are here? He twice noted that Epstein was really active with the press and also wondered, is his messaging going to be our messaging? Manfred emphasized that Epstein was hired to complement MLB's existing staff. I wasn't out there looking for Theo, he said, and reiterated that the quarterback of this project is Sword, not Theo, okay? Sword, for his part, sounded almost starstruck to be collaborating with Epstein, a product of the Moneyball generation himself. Sword views Epstein, a non-player who transformed the game, as a major inspiration. Now, they had a jocular, easy rapport as they watched the Padres-Mariners game, rooting for one outcome above all, a brisk and glitchless contest with lots of base runners, preferably ending in less than two and a half hours. Seattle's Colton Wong stepped in to lead off against San Diego's Nick Martinez at 1.11 p.m. It was 62 and sunny. Wong struck out. Center fielder Julio Rodriguez grounded a single into left, and within a few minutes, I barely noticed those big numbers counting down over the outfield fence. A minute later came history. Quote, so that was the first violation, Epstein said. I hadn't even noticed. Yes, Epstein said it was on the hitter, San Diego's Manny Machado, who had not settled into the box in time to face the Seattle left-hander Robbie Ray. The home plate umpire, Ryan Blackney, called time and pointed to his wrist to signal a violation on Machado. Now, both Epstein and Sword watched replays several times on their phones. Could the violation have been intentional? I had wondered if certain star players with mutinous tendencies, for instance Machado, might engage in pitch clock civil disobedience. Regardless, Machado was now penalized a strike, the count was now 0-1, and would go down as the first pitch clock scofflaw in baseball history. He then singled to left. Now, six weeks later, Machado became the first player to be ejected over a pitch clock violation after he called the home plate umpire Ron Culpa an F-word douchebag per lip-reading sources. The Padres and Mariners skipped right along, reaching the fifth inning after just an hour and five minutes. I mentioned to Epstein how smoothly everything appeared to be going, not just this game, but all of spring training. How little friction and complaint there seemed to be. Who have been the loudest critics, I asked him. Epstein did not hesitate. Online commenters. Entering the bottom of the ninth, the Mariners were up 3-2, and far more important, the game had a good shot of coming in under 2 hours 30 minutes. With one out, we were at 2.23, and history was in the hands of a bunch of roster stragglers. A walk, then a strikeout, we're at 2.25, Kaplan reported. The Padres shortstop Jackson Merrill singled the left, then third baseman Matthew Batten was hit by a pitch, and uh-oh, the Mariners pitching coach stepped out of the dugout. Okay, you might be about to see a pitching change which would really F us, Epstein said. Phew, it was only a mound visit. San Diego's right fielder David Dahl stepped into the box at 228. He flied out to right field to end the game in a brisk two hours, 29 minutes. We did it, baby, Epstein said, pumping his fist in celebration of a triumph that obviously surpasses everything else he's ever achieved in baseball. And when I first set out on this story, I imagined an obituary. Baseball's plotting demise was the hook. The game was mortally ill. Its tempo was poorly suited to the age. Its leaders were overmatched. 
Manfred made for a perfectly peevish face of the collapse. He had a special gift for making matters worse in 2020. After the Astros were caught in a sign-stealing caper, Manfred declined to revoke their ill-gotten World Series trophy from 2017, dismissing its significance as a piece of metal. He later apologized, just making a rhetorical point, he explained. During the labor impasse last March, a camera caught him practicing his golf swing on the day MLB announced it would be canceling games. Cubs pitcher Marcus Stroman twice referred to the commissioner as man clown. But as it turns out, game times are down, ratings are up, and the new rules, especially the pitch clocks, are drawing raves. Quote, if we'd had a pitch clock my entire career, the Dodgers manager Dave Roberts told the columnist Rick Riley, I might have learned how to play the violin by now. As of mid-May, game times were averaging 2 hours and 37 minutes, almost half an hour less than the average game in 2022. Batting averages were up 12 points. Sadly, this did not extend to my man Soto, who got off to a terrible start at the plate. Through April, he was hitting 62 points lower than his career average. Manfred has no idea how to process all this good news. He always looks like he's bracing for a light tower to fall on his head. I kept hitting him with more sunny indicators, good fan surveys, few hiccups with the new rules, and he kept wincing as if he thought I was taunting him. But my sentiment was genuine. I told him that for the first time, I'd purchased the MLB TV package this season for almost $140 and have probably watched more games in April and May alone than in all of the past five years combined. On a typical night, as the rest of my family settles in to watch some weird Netflix show about sociopathic British teenagers, I open my laptop to catch the Sox who got off to a fast start in both senses of the word, winning games at rapid speeds. They managed a remarkable 14 comeback victories through mid-May. Right fielder Alex Verdugo alone has accounted for three walk-off hits followed by a delirious post-game interviews in which he tries with limited success to get through them without swearing repeatedly. And it's all usually over in time for that night's NBA or NHL playoff action to crush my good mood and poison my dreams before bed. R.I.P. Bruins and Celtics. It's still early with the pitch clocks. The effects of sped-up games on injuries, especially to pitchers, bear monitoring over the full season. Inevitably, violations will be called or not called in high-stakes situations. Fiascos are likely, so for that matter, is the next scandal or existential crisis that baseball, being baseball, will find a way to inflict on itself and somehow make worse. And everyone will then go back to blaming Manfred for everything, including the earthquake that ends baseball once and for all, except in Seattle, City of Champions. So far, though, 2023 has been a joy. I am becoming reacquainted with box scores. Now, Sword told me he brought his six-year-old to the Mets opening day at City Field, and they made it through all nine innings, another historic first. From what I've observed, a very scientific sample, fans are looking less at their phones for fear of missing something. 
Now, later in the spring, I concluded my baseball reclamation journey with an outing to Nationals Park, where Washington's woeful squad was hosting the Cleveland Guardians on a sunny Saturday. Before the game, I visited with Terry Francona, Cleveland's manager, ostensibly to get his view on the pitch clock, but mostly because I wanted to profusely thank him, consummate professional that I am, for his glorious life's work of managing the World Series winning Red Sox of 2004 and 2007. I arrived at the Cleveland Clubhouse two hours before the 4.05 p.m. game and, of course, spent several minutes waiting around. The players all looked 14 years old and most wore headphones and stared deep into their phones. A small group played cards while one of them counted out $100 bills on the arm of a couch. A Cleveland PR guy informed me that Tito, as Francona is known, was ready and led me into the manager's office. I had 10 minutes, three of which I spent on egregious New England fanboying. Pitch clocks have required an adjustment, Francona told me, especially for lifers like him. Quote, I've been watching this game one way for 44 years, and now all of a sudden it's different, he said. What slowed baseball down to begin with? Francona mentions a few contributors, among others walk-up music, the modern practice of ballparks blaring a batter's self-selected song as he comes to the plate. Before, hitters might pause to hear their selection to its completion, but that's harder now, especially if the pitcher is ready to go. So many players have shticks. It started to take over the game, Francona said. I asked what his shtick was. I have none, he replied immediately. My shtick is, I hope we play good. As I was finishing this article, Josh Rawwich from the Hall of Fame let me know that the museum had secured, and for this we can be grateful, the clock com buzzer that had alerted Ron Culpa, the third base umpire on opening day at Wrigley Field, to the first pitch clock violation to ever occur in a regular season game. Baseball's obsession with preserving its keepsakes through generations is part of its charm. As though the sport is constantly adding new sepia-toned episodes to its perpetual Ken Burns documentary. But from the discussions I've had with the various custodians of America's pastime, they clearly do understand that for the game to capture new and younger cohorts of fans, it needs to be more than just the sum of its immutable traditions. Before I left the MLB offices for the last time, I stopped to visit Sword, who'd just finished watching his daily video mashup of every infraction that occurred at every ballpark the night before, a kind of customized red zone package for pitch clock violation junkies. Sounds like fun viewing, I said. I mentioned to Sword that baseball sometimes seems to treat itself like one big museum piece, and this seemed to amuse him. It's actually a perfect metaphor, he said, because I couldn't drag my kids to a museum. The idea is that baseball needs to attract new fans, but there's a parallel notion here with life lessons embedded. Change can invigorate at any age. It's important to keep traditions and base runners moving. Obsolescence is a choice. Now, this article appeared in the July-August 2023 print edition with the headline, How Baseball Saved Itself. Mark Leibovich is a staff writer for The Atlantic. And this is Michael Fouch, your host here on RTBS, and we thank you once again for inviting us into your home today.
Meanwhile, I believe Manny has just been called for a violation. Not getting in the box in time. Yeah, it's 0-1 as he stands in, and now the pitch is high. One ball and one strike. Typical Manny, no sweat off his back. Didn't even have a reaction. Got to look back at the umpire, and we're like, all right. So if you have Machado in your pool, there you go. 1-1 one, one is high. Two balls and a strike. So, yeah, Manny did not get into the box in the requisite amount of time. After Bogart's line to center, and he begins 0-1. We are joined now by the leader of the Padres, Manny Machado. Manny, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. How good does it feel just to be back on the field playing some ball? That's great. You know, this is, this is what we love, and it was uh, this, the offseason couldn't come any quicker, and, uh, you know, we're ready to play some baseball. It looks like you're ready to go. You got two hits today, so you've got your first hits of spring training, but you also got your first infraction, first violation. I, mean, I think you said Major League Baseball history right there by having the first violation on the time clock. What happened right there? I mean, I mean this is a, I'm about to make a big adjustment. I might be 0-1 down a lot, a lot this year, man. It's it's, it's super fast. Um, There's definitely an adjustment period that's going to be, but. Uh, going down the history books. <laughs> it looked like you were actually in the box. So what did they get you on? Having your so you got to be so at eight seconds, right on eight seconds, you got to be ready, looking at the pitcher, engaged with the pitcher. And right there, I was looking up. So he told me he's like, "Hey, you got two seconds. You got two seconds." So I stepped in as soon as I looked, and bang! So I got called with 0-1 right away. Cross Major League Baseball yesterday, and a loaded slate here today. Rymel Tapia, the batter. And he just used. That was a strike. He was not ready in a ready position at the eight second mark, which is an automatic strike now for the hitter. The batter has to be alert to the pitcher when that pitch timer has wound down to eight seconds. Crowd of 7,923 is at a good day at the ballpark here in their first Grapefruit League game. And now time called. Conley took too much time. He's out. He wasn't. He oh. didn't have his eyes on the pitcher oh. by the eight-second pitch mark on the pitch clock. And that's going to be the ball game. Conley was headed to first. He thought it was going to be a penalty for a ball, ball four. Oh, my goodness. The game just ended on a pitch clock violation. And now home plate umpire John Lipka visiting with Walt Weiss down there outside the Braves' dugout. Wow. How about that? to end an inning. You've been listening to an RTBN sports special presented by the Radio Talking Book Network in Omaha, Nebraska. It was intended solely for blind, visually impaired, and print-disabled listeners. The Radio Talking Book Network has been serving blind and visually impaired listeners for 48 years, and we thank you for being an RTBN listener and supporter.